The Year of Tragical Drinking by Glenda Mae Richards The Year of Tragical Drinking, April Every morning, Anne takes seven pills. Most are vitamins, B12, magnesium, D3, and not prescriptions. One is the thyroid regulator. Often people with Down syndrome have underactive thyroids, which can make them gain weight. When Anne was living with Dad, she became rather chubby. Leaving aside my budding wine belly, we weren't a fat family. Nurse Janet to the rescue. She sorted out a prescription for thyroxine, and soon Anne slimmed down. As for me, Janet recommended I curb my enthusiasm for Pinot Noir. But Anne remained lethargic, even a bit grumpy. Janet thought she might be depressed. So she managed to convince Anne's conventional and rather brusque doctor that Anne should be prescribed an antidepressant. We're not talking lithium here, just a mild course of Prozac, Janet told me. I've been taking it for a few years now. If I lived with Chris, I probably would take it too, I thought. Prozac did help Anne. She became less morose, lighter, giggled more. Make sure she takes two 15 milligram pills every morning. No breaks, Janet instructed when she left the pills with me. Prozac increases serotonin levels over the long term. It's not like all those ecstasy pills you used to take. Janet had not entirely approved of my London lifestyle. In fact, I had first taken ecstasy in Toronto. I had heard rumors about the drug. People at parties murmured that so-and-so was on E. Someone had taken X. When a rich friend got married on his family's farm, a stash of ecstasy was scored. I swallowed one pill. As I was chatting to a guest indoors, an urgent wave of emotion welled up inside me. Excuse me, I said, but I must go outside now. I joined my friends around the bonfire. They were smiling and everyone's eyes were luminously large. Can you feel it? I feel it too. After that, we felt it every weekend. We hung out at a bar called Mrs. Smith's Cocktail Party where we bought pills from the bartender. I was such a regular that when I stayed home one Friday night, the bar staff called me and asked why I wasn't there. It's our six-month anniversary party, they said. Get over here. It was nearly midnight, but I duly got dressed and rejoined Mrs. Smith's posse. When the bar shut around 3 a.m., we headed to Mark's loft and listened to the Pixies. I had a crush on Mark, a TV cameraman who had sexy brown eyes that turned black when his pupils dilated on pills. After we shared a night of smoking and kissing, I was totally loved up. He was totally not. So I hooked up with Andrew, a teacher who did cocaine on weekends and had lesbian porn mags under his bed. Mark moved to Bangkok and married a Thai girl. Then I met Alex, a cute blonde boy from England. He was in Toronto to try and sort out the city's first proper rave. Alex explained to me that in the UK, people didn't sit around smoking fags and listening to indie bands when they were on ecstasy. They got up and danced all night to DJs playing house music. 
Alex hired a warehouse in the industrial lakefront, stacking it with purple-blue lights and massive speakers. Why is the music so loud, complained one of only three friends I persuaded to come along and pay the $10 cover charge. And where is everybody? Toronto's debut rave was not a success. People balked at paying an entrance fee for a private event. My friend even asked for her money back, but Alex looked so crestfallen that I gave her the 10 bucks myself. Those few that did pay stood around, bemused at the sight of lights bouncing off empty floors. The thump, thump, thump bass echoed doggedly. Nobody danced. I never saw Alex again. He moved on to Detroit and the sturdier techno scene, but something in his failed rave touched me. I wanted to go where it wouldn't have failed, where people knew what to do with all those insistent beats. I wanted to go to London. That summer, Mum was going through her second round of chemo for ovarian cancer. She was so valiant, a tiny turbaned English lady tottering about the kitchen with her walker. After a minuscule meal of scrambled eggs, she'd lie on the sofa reading my copy of Douglas Copeland's Generation X and sipping weak tea. I learned that the British government allowed children of parents born in the UK to live and work in the country legally. Mom helped me track down her birth certificate from the bureaucratic bowels of London's pre-war record-keeping offices. When it arrived from St. Catherine's House, we posted it, along with my Canadian passport, to Ottawa. A few weeks later, we got both documents back. Mom's birth certificate was intact, but my passport now had an official seal stating that the owner possessed permanent right of abode in the UK. Then mom stopped her treatment. When I die, I want it to be from the cancer, not the chemo, she stated. She went into hospital and was given liquid morphine. We took turns by her bedside, dad with Anne, Janet and me. Mom flirted with the male nurse and cracked jokes about having gin with her morphine, please. After a week, she was home, frail but unafraid. I think death will be just like going under anesthetic, she said. It is not like sleeping. It is not heaven. It is just nothing. She made a list of the music she wanted at her funeral. No hymns, nothing religious. She showed Janet and me the jewelry she wanted us to have. Remember these, she said to me, holding up a pair of pink wood earrings. I could never wear them. They were too heavy for my ears, but so pretty. From Venice, right? I took the chunky earrings, Venice, for my birthday. I had bought the earrings and then immediately knew they were wrong for mum. She would have loved the delicate hand-printed writing paper I'd seen earlier. But my boyfriend didn't want to walk back to that shop and I didn't push it. I wish I had. One evening after supper, mom sat with us but didn't eat. My friend Mary rang. Mary was a gutsy radio journalist from Ireland who'd been a year ahead of me in college. I know you want to get to London, she said but I've got a plane ticket to Dublin I can't use. For 35 bucks, you can change the name on the ticket and fly there first. Only thing is, the flight is the day after tomorrow. Up for it? Let me know ASAP. I told Mom Mary's proposal. But of course I won't go, I said. Why not, asked Mom. Because, well, you're... I should stay at home until... I couldn't say it. 
Mom clasped my hand. You go, she said. Here is your chance. Go to London. It's what you want. And I want you to go. I flew to Dublin and travelled around Ireland for a week. Cliffs of Moher, Ring of Kerry, Galway. Then the ferry to Hollyhead in Wales and train to London. I found a bedsit in Marlebone and a receptionist job in Knightsbridge. I bought an A to Z and travelled the tube. London was noisy, erratic, and could care less what you did. It was just my cup of Earl Grey. Two months later, I flew back to Canada and the same hospital. Mom was shrunken on the bed, barely breathing. This time, we did not take bedside turns. We all crouched close. As she went quickly, with a short rasp, I kissed her cheek. Good for you, Mummy, I whispered. You go too. There were a few false starts before I'm really up to scratch in London's drug race. The Astoria nightclub, where I hover nervously around the dance floor, finally getting up the nerve to ask a gangly boy with one white glove where I could buy a knee. From me, he says. An inconvenient truth, as the pill is a dud and does nothing. I take the night bus home. The universe tribal gathering, seven tents of music, bouncy castles, where I take acid instead of ecstasy by mistake and stay awake all weekend staring at my glow stick. I wake up Monday with conjunctivitis in my right eye and have to wear an eye patch to work. A rhythm method party where I buy a pair of Mitsubishis for five pounds each from Jim the Builder. In the backseat of a ride to the after party, my first, I feel nauseous. In the bathroom in the flat of the after party, I throw up. A lot. Later, I learn Mitsubishis are usually cut with speed. The Nunca Nunca after party, my second, where, despite putting in 20 quid and walking five blocks to buy bubbly at the off-license, I am not offered any lines of cocaine. And then someone calls me a cab. Eventually, I hit my stride and hook up with a couple of party partners. The requisite handsome gay mate, Jono, once engaged to a girl but now out, and Glam Denise, she of the camel cigs and Guerlain lips. A typical weekend starts with Jono's Friday night status check call. Jono, are you up for trade and DTPM a la weekend? Me, could happen. I'm supposed to check out cheeky people at the cross. I'm on the guest list. Jono, you mean the non-queuing, non-paying guest list or the wait 40 minutes and pay half price guest list? Me, ha, probably the, okay, we'll let you in, but it's still 15 quid one. But Seb Fontaine is playing. Jono, ah, but Laurent Gonier is at trade and John pleased women. Plus I can put names on the door if you want. Me. Are the dyke bouncers going to make me name three gay magazines again? Jono. No, darling. The door policy is a bit more pro-breeder these days. It's politically incorrect to be anti-straight. Me. Right. I won't wear my fake nose stud then. Jono. See you Sunday. Say 5 a.m. ish? Me. Sounds good. Ciao.
Saturday. 2 p.m. Meet Denise for lunch at 192. Consume two bottles of rosé. Eat half a goat's cheese salad. 6 p.m. Pub slash drug stop at the George on Wardour Street. Chat with other clubbers we last weekend. Oh, you were at the fridge too? Purchase two pills called Superman. 10 p.m. Return to flat for costume change. Dither over choice of denim cutoffs with bra top or girly slip dress. Go for girly look, but add elbow length gloves for extra glam. Consume one bottle of white. 12 a.m. Arrive at the cross for cheeky people night. Note there are three queues, all frightfully immobile. Stand in shortest queue. Try to look like Patsy Kensit and confident will be let in at any moment. 12.45 a.m. Friend who assured me I am on guest list appears with clipboard. Waves in small clan of club promoters. Does not acknowledge me. 1 a.m. Attempt to chat up beefy bouncer. Mistake. Obviously on mega steroids and with IQ of a slug. Slug requests that I move to end of queue. Protest. Second mistake. Slug instructs me to leave. Uses bouncer sign language, i.e. pushes me. Most inopportune. My guest list friend oblivious to situation. Blithely welcomes in more VIPs. Cheeky people. The nerve. 1.30 a.m. Stranded outside club, vainly seeking cab. Desperate. Too early for trade. Contemplate laying assault charges on Bouncer. Recall reading about knifing near the cross in which Bouncer's throat slit. Mm, could account for current hostility. Take one Superman to counter creeping club angst. 2 a.m. Find myself in dismally uncrowded Leicester Square Tourist Club. Off my tits. Snog 21-year-old cute Italian boy. Impress him with my dancing and our 13-year age gap. Manage to smoke half a pack of marble lights without setting fire to gloves. 5 a.m. Thank goddess for time warp factor E, which has condensed last three hours to 30 minutes. Toy with idea of taking Italian club toy to trade. Realize he may not make it out alive. Sunday, 5.30 a.m. Arrive at trade. Hassle-free entry. Engorged by sweating male bodies, none of them concerned with mine. Take half a Superman. Become transfixed by solipsistic Spartan display. Spot Jono amidst shirtless masses and plunge in. 6.30 a.m. Surrounded by wagon train of Muscle Marys. No peck hole of escape. Nice for ox, says one. Compliment and peel peak coincide. Lose Jono. 7 a.m. Reunion with Jono in bar. Drink Evian water laced with speed. Jono says most men at trade are HIV positive and get off on seven pills a night. Improvement from the 70s where no one had heard of AIDS and everyone got off on seven men a night. Relieved my only sexual health worry is thrush. Swallow final half. 9.30 a.m. Dance floor resembles Hades. Inflexible heat. 
everywhere tattooed and leather-chapped chaps with mustaches, can not only smell but taste their sweat. Get the hell out. 10.30 a.m. At Jono's flat for cups of tea and spliffs. Brief revival via 12-inch remix of Dereem's corny but catchy You Are the Best Thing. Jono snoozes. Lie on sofa and drift through back issues of attitude. Doze off in middle of article about hot footballers. 2 p.m. Things perking up. Speed far superior snorted than drunk, we ascertain. Also, one cold red stripe helps. Next target, DTPM. Forgotten what that stands for and where it is. Jono says it means definitely the place for man and he could get there blindfolded. 4 p.m. Might as well be blindfolded. Contact lens and retinas not cooperating. Too much dry ice and too many wet boys about for comfort. Jono evacuates with adolescent claiming to be Bosnian underwear model. 5 p.m. Spy Denise in sonic trance by amps. Cheered by sight of straight sister. Sit and smoke and compare weekends. Her quota, two microdots, brackets mild, half dove, some hash, brackets eaten, two snogs, three packs camels. Her quorums, return to the source, heaven, for brief drug replenish stopover, and club alien. 7 p.m. Back to mine. Denise sneers at my paltry CD collection, Prodigy, Left Field, Ministry of Sound Collection, Volume 1. Find a Portishead cassette. Denise finds spider leg of coke in her makeup bag. Pretend it works. Glug red wine. Go to bed. 10 p.m. Can't sleep. Must sleep. Normal life resumes tomorrow. Until the next fucked up fuzzy weekend. I'm a bit nostalgic for those ravey London days, those hazy, crazy club nights, the fantastic music, trancing for hours on tunes. The music is a machine and we are inside it, Denise would say. It doesn't know and it doesn't care. At that time, there were tons of bad news stories about E. It was risky. It spiked serotonin levels artificially. It was a short-term high that was dangerous in the long term and ecstasy users would all be depressed in the future. Well, here is the future. I'm in Toronto taking care of Anne. I'm happy living with her. I'm not depressed. I'm the sister not on antidepressants, unless you count wine. It was the macaroni that made mum mad. When Anne came home with the curly pieces of pasta stuck to cardboard, mum put her foot down. Her daughter was not going to be shoved into a school for the mentally retarded, a school where only crafts was on the curriculum, not reading and writing. Anne could spell her name in small words. She could read children's books. We had all helped her learn these skills at home. Mum was determined the learning wouldn't stop there. In the early 80s, school boards balked at putting students with learning disabilities in the same classes as normal students. But mom pushed against this edict, and eventually it gave way. Anne was allowed to attend the school down the street, just like the other kids in her neighborhood. And when Anne finished school at 16, mom didn't let up. She found Anne a job with Goodwill Industries. Goodwill was a company that employed disabled people to do very rudimentary work, putting pills in capsules, sorting nuts and bolts. 
Anne said the best part was that the radio was on while she worked. Anne had to take two buses to get to Goodwill. She'd leave at 7.30 a.m. to wait for the first bus near our house, ride for 15 minutes, get off, and wait at another stop. Then she would travel 20 minutes on the second bus that dropped her off outside Goodwill. She did this three days a week, even in the frigid winter. I've never been that dedicated to any job. One morning, Anne got off a bus at the wrong stop. She was lost and confused. So she did what any sensible girl would do. She went to the nearest fire station. The firemen were friendly and helpful. They gave Anne a ride home in their fire truck. Why didn't she go to a police station, Dad wondered. Because, Daddy, I said, as every woman knows, firemen are way cuter than cops. When Anne turned 21, Mom organized a party for her. She booked a room in Anne's favorite pizza restaurant. Teachers, co-workers, and classmates were invited to celebrate Anne's coming of age. Mom even hired a bagpipe player. Inexplicably, Anne loved the sound of bagpipes. There was pizza and champagne, speeches and songs. At the end, Anne stood up and said, Thank you, everyone. You have touched my heart. Then the damn piper started up again. <laughs>